Today's the final Sunday in the Christian calendar. Next week is first Sunday of Advent, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. And today is also Christ the King Sunday, uh, which is one of those feast days that doesn't get the same sort of attention as Easter and Christmas. It's a, it's a late addition to the Christian lectionary calendar. Christ the King, though, was and is a pronouncement by the church against the kingdoms and the powers of this world. Those kingdoms that uh, embrace power and oppression as a means to glory. It's a day that the church collectively declares to the world that you may elect whom you will, and you may flex your military muscles, but none of that changes the fact that you and we are not in charge around here. We may think we are, but things aren't always what they seem to be. And God has done something in His Son, Jesus of Nazareth, that we can't pass possibly fathom. His cross has overcome death. Darkness can't withstand His light. Hope and love are more powerful than bombs. The poor and homeless and victimized are not overlooked, unnoticed, or unloved. And the destiny of the world is not resting in the hands of Joe Biden, or Hamas, or Israel, or Putin, or the Portland City Council, or the Federal Reserve, or Wall Street. The only one who could possibly be in charge is the one who holds the keys to the greatest and only enemy that each of us has, death itself. And if God really does kill death, by the death of Christ, then only Christ can be the true king. Now that is comforting, isn't it? We should preach the kingship of Christ to ourselves every single day. It's the linchpin of the gospel. It's the key motif in the Bible. It's the hope of our future. It's the grounding of our own identity. It's the all-encompassing explanation of why there's something rather than nothing, and it tells us exactly where the world is headed. The world and the future world depend on Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's Christ the King Sunday. Thanks be to God. Which makes texts like our gospel reading today in Matthew all the more perplexing. Here's a king in Matthew 25 who's virtually invisible to the world. No one notices him. Whether they're righteous or they're unrighteous, according to Jesus in this parable, no one happens to notice the king until he peels back the curtain and everyone can see him in his full unmediated glory. But for now, in this point, in this time, he is veiled. And until that final day comes, how does a king rule a kingdom if he is invisible? And furthermore, how does a king rule a kingdom if his followers are ignorant about something so critical as justice and eternal life. Parable is about final judgment, right? Who is ultimately on the king's side? So it seems inconceivable that Jesus would say 
that those who are righteous have no idea that they are righteous or how they got that way. Did you hear that in the parable? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? See? The king has just given them his entire kingdom, and they're confused as to how they got it. What's going on here? What are we to make of such a parable? If this is a king, he's not ruling in any conventional sense of that term. Now, the first point to make about the parable is that it doesn't sound like our standard Christian evangelical come-to-Jesus-gospel doctrine. What many of us have been told is that if we have faith or pray a prayer confessing our sin and trusting Jesus, then that's what makes us a sheep and not a goat. Now, of course, there are elements of truth in that standard gospel presentation that line up with Jesus' message, but for the most part, it remains very much at surface level and doesn't really get to the heart of what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't teach that all we need is a religious transaction that results in membership in a club. We don't pay our dues and get in. We don't pray some sort of magic prayer and now all of a sudden become followers of Jesus for the rest of our lives. And if there's a parable about final judgment, you would think if he's identifying the sheep and that was the core issue, that that's what he would say, but he doesn't say that. But on the other hand, he's all, he also isn't saying here in Matthew 25, or really anywhere else, that all you have to do is make a certain number of charitable contributions and automatically you're a disciple. You see, we can miss Jesus' point no matter where we are on that spectrum or on either side of that coin. Either on the religiously conservative side where faith and a holy life and obeying commandments and giving are all key signs of what a disciple is. Or on the theologically liberal side where one of the most prominent signs of a disciple is when we engage in social justice and mercy, whatever justice and mercy may mean to you. And we can still miss Jesus' point, no matter where we are on that spectrum. So, let me press down into it just a little bit, by way of a story. Um, as you know, our youngest son, most of you know this, youngest son David, uh, David and his hair used to attend here. <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis until he went to uh, college recently. He's down in Eugene at University of Oregon. Friday was the big game with Oregon State. My sympathies to some of you uh, around that. And a friend of ours uh, gave us some tickets to the game. Our daughter-in-law and our eldest son had never been to campus. They'd never been to a football game. They wanted to see where David lives, uh, or at least a football game there. Um, they wanted to see where he was living and uh, get a feel for the campus environment, so we, so we went down. And as we were walking from the campus to the stadium, 
both to the game and returning from it, there were a group of people holding signs telling us that we needed to get saved or we'd go to hell. And at the same time, there was a young man with a tremendous amount of zeal and passion yelling at the crowd that we are all sinners and unless we repent and trust the blood of Jesus, we are all going to perish in hell. Can you imagine yourself there hearing this? How do you think the crowd responded to his message? Yeah, mostly ignore him. A few made some snide comments as they passed by. Over the years, I've thought about why this approach bothers me so much. And here's one of the main reasons. Because even though it sounds like the gospel, with a lot of gospel words attached to it, it's not really the gospel because it's the gospel with a gun to your head. And when you're facing the gospel with a gun to your head, something happens, something changes in your motivation. Your motivation to responding to that message is now out of duty, obligation, or self-interest. Whether you respond positively or negatively, you become motivated by self-interest. Pure duty, pure obligation, pure self-interest. And that is not the gospel. Besides that, duty and self-interest always ultimately fail and break down, and they change. They ebb and flow. Our interests change, and they shift with cultural tides. And our duties vary depending on what we see as important in the moment or what we feel obligated to do by society. The heart of the gospel of Jesus has to be more than avoiding hell or getting a ticket to heaven. Because if that's all it is, then we are just like all the other religions. There's something interesting in this parable that points us in a different direction, in the direction of the gospel itself. The ones who were righteous had no idea that they had ministered to Christ because they were giving of themselves to others purely out of love for the other. And self-interest was the farthest thing from them. And when the king gave them the kingdom, they were confused how it all came about. Me? Really? How? When did that happen? I didn't even notice that. I was just going about my business. They needed something, so I gave it. They were in prison, so I visited. It was just there. So the motivation must have been something else other than self-interest, other than aspiring to or acquiring that eternal bliss or blessings. So it wasn't the gospel with the gun to their head. It was pure love. Now, I've described that gospel with the gun 
to your head from one side of the spectrum, but it can come from the other side as well. Don't overlook that. On that side of the spectrum, the primary demonstration of faithfulness is social justice, which, as I've hinted at already, no one fully agrees on what that is. But as long as you're donating or supporting some kind of cause, then you're being a good disciple, at least in that view. Now question, is it possible that you can do that out of pure duty and self-interest as well? Certainly it is. So the sheep, the ones who are blessed of God, are these ignorant disciples who just can't help but give of themselves for the sake of others. Purely. Because someone is there who has a need. And that just sounds a lot like love. For God so loved the world that He gave. That He gave everything. So here we have an unseen king who identifies with the down and out of the world and ignorant disciples who aren't in the know. How's that for a church PR headline? <laughs> I can also see how this might be threatening to the religious establishment of Jesus' day. Remember, he was on the attack against the, Pharise the Pharisees and the rulers and the teachers of the law. And more than anything, they prided themselves on being gatekeepers and interpreters of all the knowledge of the law itself. If anyone knew who was righteous and who wasn't, it was the teachers of the law, the leaders of the synagogue, the ones we might call the pastors and the elders of the church. Furthermore, they loved to demonstrate how their education and standing had brought them material gain. I mean, they were a big deal, right? They just had this way of reminding everyone that they were a big deal, even though it was cloaked in a lot of false humility. You know people like that? I'm trying to be kind. Jesus wasn't really kind toward them. He called them lovers of money and equivalent to empty tombs inside. He doesn't tend to sugarcoat those sorts of things. But still, I have to admit, this feels threatening to me. Because I'm in the business of knowing what I need to know in order to pass it along to you so that you can be in the know. Knowledge is my business. And furthermore, we need money. We need money to make sure we can make as many disciples as we possibly can because that's what Jesus called us to do. And you know something? Jesus has called us to know Him and to know His Word and to know His commandments and to observe them and to teach them. He's called us to make disciples of every nation and to baptize and to forgive and pray and intercede and love our enemies and to hope and believe and persevere and to feed on Him in the sacrament. He's told us to do all of that. That's what true disciples of Jesus do. But he says none of that here in Matthew 25. 
when he speaks about the final judgment. Which, of course, doesn't mean that none of that stuff matters. But here, he decides to tighten the screws a bit and drive down into heart level, forcing us to consider our true identity as a sheep or as a goat. So what is it about the sheep that results in blessing? And what is it about the goats that results in condemnation? There would be a lot of things to say. I'll just say this. Listen to the reason Jesus gives the sheep for their eternal blessing. I'll say it to you again, emphasizing a few words. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. What do you hear? Personal. Intimate, face to face. This is something that disciples of Jesus have done personally for another human being, and in so doing, have done it to him. It's very important to say that Jesus is not establishing an alternative to capitalism or to socialism. Jesus isn't telling us to care for the poor until something better comes along. He's saying that my sheep, the ones who hear my voice and follow me, will live like I have lived. And how has he lived? Well, he's offered himself as the bread of life. He's given himself as the water that eternally quenches thirst. His hospitality knows no bounds because his very life is on the table for our nourishment. He clothes us with brand new wedding garments. We talked about this a few weeks ago as we thought about the marriage with God in heaven one day. His time is the time of good news to the captives and setting the prisoners free, he says in Luke chapter 4. And all of this is the most intimate personal encounter from Jesus that you can imagine. So intimate that his spirit resides in you and with you. You see that? This is part of the beauty of the incarnation. Jesus has come and looked us in the eye. It's personal. And in his flesh, he gave us the life of God. And now the sheep are the ones who live like he has and like he does. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of self-interest, but out of an effervescent, overflowing, undying, sacrificial, otherworldly love that can't be explained or stopped. And the goats 
when confronted with the desperation of others, avoid that personal interaction and leave it to others or leave it to a system because it doesn't benefit them. In his commentary on Matthew, Stanley Hauerwas quotes Dorothy Day from an essay called The Scandal of the Works of Mercy, where she shares that her colleague, Peter Morin, wasn't particularly interested, or at least not as much, in social policies for the poor from government entities as much as he was and rather believed that works of mercy were the social policy that Jesus had given his people for the renewal of the world. Morin thought that in order to convince people that Jesus' social policy is given for the renewal of the world, quote, it was necessary to embrace voluntary poverty, to strip yourself, which would give you the means to practice the works of mercy. To reach the man in the street, you must go to the street. To reach the workers, you begin to study the philosophy of labor and take up manual labor. To be the least, to be the worker, to be poor, to take the lowest place and thus be the spark which would set afire the love of men towards each other and to God. Harwas continues, Day calls this understanding of the works of mercy a scandal because it challenges the assumption that Christians are to do something for the poor by trying to create alternatives to capitalism or socialism, as I said earlier. The problem with this is we seduce ourselves, and this is how we're speaking, if we seduce our, is we seduce ourselves into believing that we are working to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, care for the sick and those in prison, and here's the key phrase, without knowing anyone who is hungry, naked, thirsty, a stranger, sick, or in prison. Gets us off the hook. It's impersonal. There are myriad applications for us. I'm still thinking through the implications for me. Perhaps it means we give away without the benefit of a tax deduction. Maybe it means we don't sell those clothes on Facebook Marketplace, or even give them to Goodwill, again, the tax deduction. But maybe we just hand them away to someone in need, someone we know who can give us nothing in return. Maybe the visit to the prison puts us way out of our comfort zone. we get connected to a family who's without a father and is in need of fatherly love and guidance and provision. 
Perhaps it means we risk our own health by caring for our neighbor who's confined to her bed and hasn't cleaned her house or herself in years. Like Father Damien in Hawaii many years ago, who served amongst the leper colony for a long time until the day he contracted leprosy. He stood up one Sunday in the service and his normal address was my dear lepers and then this Sunday my fellow lepers. A life wasted? Hardly. Come, you who are blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. In town church, I with you want to be an outward-facing, hospitable, caring church. And it begins with our own hearts, yours and mine, overflowing into personal acts of mercy that exhibit the fullness of the sacrifice of our Lord. I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Thanks be to God.